I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on February 21st, 2021. Episode 6, The Damage of Judicial Activism, Why the Court Should Not Decide Final Issues of Policy. Look back at the headlines surrounding most recent Supreme Court nominations, especially where the seat vacated is perceived as one that may give one side or the other of the political spectrum a chance to swing the court one direction or the other, and you will see that all too often the Supreme Court, and to a lesser degree the lower federal courts and state courts, are viewed as some final policy decision maker. But that is not the role of judges or the courts on which they sit. Today's episode seeks to shed some light on the importance of judicial philosophy, on why justices appointed by liberal presidents almost always vote for liberal outcomes, while those appointed by conservative, or at least Republican, presidents appear less predictable, and sometimes they are, and on why we have done a great disservice to our country by embracing the fallacy that the court is the final arbiter of the law and that the court should be our final savior from bad policy. The founders never intended or expected this least dangerous branch to do any of those things, and to be any of those things. But now that we've accepted it as so, it's just one more nail in the coffin of actual self-governance and control of our government by the people. As with so many topics about our governmental structure, it helps to start at the beginning and with our founders' understandings. In describing and defending the judiciary they created, Federalist Number 78 provides the following. In a government in which the different departments of power are separated from each other, the judiciary from the nature of its functions, will always be the least dangerous to the political rights of the Constitution because it will be least in a capacity to annoy and injure them. And this description of the judiciary continues, stating that unlike the other two branches, the judiciary, quote, has no influence over either the sword or the purse, no direction either of the strength or of the wealth of society, and can take no active resolution whatever, end quote. This judiciary also described as beyond comparison the weakest of the three departments of power, that it can never attack with success either of the other two, may be unrecognizable from the judiciary we face today. But our founders went even further to explain the limited role of the courts in claiming 
that the general liberty of the people can never be endangered by that quarter, so long as the judiciary remains truly distinct from both the legislature and the executive. And here is where we as a nation have allowed the courts to take a wrong turn. For far from distinct from the legislative and executive branches, the courts, and especially the Supreme Court, has all too often become a super-legislature, imposing rules and rights upon the people that can nowhere be found in any properly passed law, natural right, or in the Constitution itself. Just as the Congress has over time ceded its authority on so many issues to the executive, so too has Congress, and to a lesser extent the President, allowed the court to create law where none exists, where none could successfully be passed through a proper legislative process, and where the law imposed by the court dictate goes against the will of the people. Where once only the left seemed to look to and accept as righteous ultimate decisions from the Supreme Court, now both parties can be heard to scream for action from our highest court whenever policy decisions do not turn out in that side's favor. This is to counter the Constitution. It's counter to what the Constitution says. It's counter to our traditions of separation of power and to freedom. From looking to the court on issues like abortion and health care to expecting the Supreme Court to fix any policy that's gone astray, we've stopped appreciating what the court's role should be, and why supporting those who view a limited role of judges strictly to interpret the law by its actual words, and not to read into it what that particular judge thinks the words ought to say, is actually the best path toward protecting our rights and way of life. When did the country take this wrong turn, and why? Robert Bork, vilified for advocating for judicial adherence to a law's text, summed up the problem best in the title of one of his best-selling books, The Tempting of America, The Political Seduction of the Law. The law has been politically seduced, and it continues to be lured into ruling in areas in which it simply does not belong. And this seduction has a long history. It started when the court began wading into economic policymaking following the Civil War, And the greatest doorway for this judicial policymaking, the door inviting so much lawmaking by the courts, were the post-Civil War amendments that by their terms are clear in that they protect equal protection of the laws and procedures. But what we will see as we get further and further from the amendment of the Constitution in this time period is a growing body of law, policy not made by any political branch, that reads into these amendments and now into other areas of the Constitution, legal principles that the court has, for all practical purposes, made up out of whole cloth. What seduces judges to wade into political waters may vary judge to judge, but at its core it is a belief, a mistaken belief by some judges, that their role in the system is to do justice, to do what the judge perceives as right, but that is not the role. The role is to do justice only by applying the text of the laws that have been properly passed and adopted by our elected representatives. Otherwise, we may as well punt all policy decisions to judges, something that the founders would find not only unacceptable, but shocking that any population would accept. When the court was called upon in Loan Association v. Topeka to consider a Kansas statute that permitted cities to issue bonds and donate them to private businesses as a kind of incentive to locate in the city, the court concluded that the citizens could only be taxed for purposes that served the public good. This decision may sound good, but consider the problem. Neither the Kansas Constitution nor the U.S. Constitution include such a requirement. The dissent in this case quoted a most apropos statement by Chief Justice Marshall. Quote, 
The interest, wisdom, and justice of the representative body furnish the only security in a large class of cases not regulated by any constitutional provision, end quote. This is the flip side of the clear understanding that any authority not granted to our federal government is reserved for the states or the people, not for the federal courts. And the Loan Association case is by no means the worst example of these early court power grabs. Lochner versus New York is all but synonymous with judicial activism, the judge simply making up the Constitution. And far from the only economic case where this occurred in the early 20th century, Lochner just became the symbol of judicial overreach, creating its own verb, to Lochnerize. Whenever a judge was viewed to have made up constitutional restrictions, he was said to have Lochnerized. But this was just the start of judicial lawmaking that would explode, much like Pandora's box, which once opened, cannot be closed. The Supreme Court, during the times of President Roosevelt's New Deal initiatives, was all but a super legislature attempting to alter and amend legislation. But the actions of the New Deal court were notable perhaps mostly because the court was no longer on trend. Its decisions were not popular among the people and were frustrating the political branches. So it's during this time in history that FDR threatened to and attempted to pack the court. And where the court went beyond its authority in the post-Civil War era and the early 20th century decisions to strike down laws with no constitutional basis to do so, the court going into the 1930s and 40s swung the other direction beyond its authority, to uphold federal legislation that went well beyond the federal government's constitutionally granted authority. For what student of constitutional law can forget the 1942 decision of Wickard v. Filburn, where the court upheld a federal quota set by the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture on the growing of wheat, where the farmer being penalized was merely raising wheat on his own farm for personal consumption. I doubt anyone could honestly conclude that this kind of federal government action was what the founders envisioned for their new limited government and the Commerce Clause powers of Congress. The list of poorly decided Supreme Court cases is long, and it shows a shift in priorities on the court with moments of clarity and proper restraint. Sadly, those moments of restraint are not only harder to find as we move through history, they grow more sparse, and the power grabs of the court more permanently damaging. Rarely does any discussion of the following issues occur without the assumption by so many that the issue will ultimately be decided by the Supreme Court. From the general right of privacy, which is found nowhere in the Constitution, to abortion, to affirmative action, to health care, to the expansion of authority based on some incomprehensible notion of substantive due process, the term is due process, by the way, it does not have a substantive quality and it does not have any emanations or penumbras. But these issues are always believed to be finally decided by the court. When the Constitution says in the 14th Amendment that no state shall, quote, deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws, it is hard to see how that text includes any right to give preferences to anyone for any reason, especially not race, the very equality the 14th Amendment was enacted to protect. What it is important for everyone to understand is that with any power grab, it becomes harder to take that power back. We have allowed the courts to supplant the people's preferences when it comes to policy. But let's look at how that happened by exploring the different judicial philosophies espoused by our jurists over the years. Terms like judicial restraint, judicial conservatism, strict construction, textualism, a living constitution, and judicial activism are often thrown around when describing a particular court nominee, a particular sitting judge, or a particular decision. But it becomes clear pretty quickly that most people have no idea what any of these terms mean and why they are important. Let's take Robert Bork as an example. Perhaps the start of ugly Supreme Court nominee battles, 
even giving way to its own verb of borking, the treatment of Robert Bork when President Reagan nominated him to the highest court was nothing shy of a public tarring and feathering for the positions he held on the role of a judge. Instead of properly portraying someone who felt bound by the words of the actual law, he was called a racist, a sexist, and worse. But the only thing Robert Bork was guilty of was not substituting his own opinions for those of the founders or of our lawmakers. Robert Bork's history as a judge and his explanations as a law professor and nominee on his judicial philosophy made clear that he viewed his role as one of applying the law as written, not picking the preferable result and reasoning backwards. What that meant was that often his legal conclusions did not support what someone might think was the best policy outcome. But that is not the role of a judge. If the law results in bad or even absurd policy outcomes, it is the political branches that must fix it. The judge has no magic authority to change the law to his preference, and why would anyone want a judge to have such power? If you give a judge that power, much like when you accept overreaching by the executive, you are essentially saying the people should not have a say in their government through their elected representatives, but instead that some supreme power lies in the courts to usurp the people's authority by reaching different policy decisions than those their elected officials concluded were best. This is in no way the judiciary the founders created. Despite Robert Bork's faithfulness to the system embodied in the Constitution, his opponents spent an estimated 10 to $15 million to paint him as some evil force. Despite his commitment to the very Constitution upon which the country was founded, he was described as outside the legal mainstream. And despite the concept of judicial restraint being one on which conservatives and liberals had once agreed, and unsupported claims were made that Judge Bork's America is a land in which women would be forced into back-alley abortions, blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters, rogue police could break down citizens' doors in midnight raids, and the doors of the federal courts would be shut on millions of citizens. Of course, none of these accusations were true, but it was one of the first such campaigns against a nominee because of his judicial philosophy, and it is a tactic the left would use time and time again against those it viewed as enemies— those who viewed their role as a judge as being bound by the law as written. Merely making these accusations of bias, even more so today, can stick to the accused nominee like glue without any validity or proof required. And it's easy to launch these allegations when the allegations focus on case results and not the law on which the case was decided. What was really under attack was a view of the judge as a part of an independent and limited judiciary. They were under attack because the left favored a judiciary that could ram through any policy outcomes the left sought but could not achieve through proper democratic processes. Justice Antonin Scalia made it through the confirmation process before this kind of attack was common and just a short time prior to Bork's nomination. Touted as one of the great originalists, the late Justice Antonin Scalia described the Constitution and his role in interpreting it as follows. Quote, the Constitution that I interpret and apply is not living but dead, or as I prefer to call it, enduring. It means today not what current society, much less the court, thinks it ought to mean, but what it meant when it was adopted, end quote. He was one to say that his job was not to, quote, make a case come out right, but to uphold the Constitution. And Justice Scalia's former law clerk and now associate justice on the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett, carries on that same judicial philosophy. Justice Barrett, in her confirmation hearings, clearly explained originalism. So, in English, that means I interpret the Constitution as a law, that I interpret its text as text, and I understand it to have the meaning that it had at the time people ratified it. So that meaning doesn't change over time. It is not up to me to update it or infuse my own policy views into it. 
As her mentor Justice Scalia said many times, that is the job of the legislature. If they want to change the law, pass a law. And Clarence Thomas made it clear that as a judge, you don't justify the outcome, you reason to the outcome. He used a good sports analogy to explain how he viewed his role. People have a tendency in sports to be outcome-oriented. You want a particular outcome. You want to win the game. If the referees make a call consistent with the outcome you prefer, then you say the referee did a great job because that referee has somehow benefited or made possible the outcome you want. I think we have to be careful not to take outcomes that we want and backwash that into the process of decision-making. This is the perfect explanation, and also the perfect explanation for why the allegations of these judicially restrained judges as bigoted or unreasonable are simply wrong. You do not pick an outcome and reason backwards. The law and the Constitution supports an outcome, and you are bound to uphold that outcome, like it or not. Clarence Thomas's nomination to the court was an American travesty. He presented a dilemma for the left, who opposed him not for any of the reasons put forward publicly, but because he represented, like Bork and Scalia before him, judicial restraint and a clear judicial philosophy based in text. He could not be counted on to reason to the outcomes the left wanted from the court, the outcomes they cannot or have not been able to get through proper legislative process. And Clarence Thomas called it as he saw it, referring to the circus the left mobilized against him as a modern-day lynching. Luckily for us, Thomas was confirmed. Despite these and other nominees' faithfulness to the rule of law, by viewing the roles as interpretive of the actual words and not as drafters of the laws it ought to have been written, they were routinely asked about or theories were floated about how they would decide key policy issues. But their judicial philosophies do not reason from a result to analysis. Instead, it's an objective approach to the words in the actual law to reach the result dictated by those words. You cannot seek commitment on results if your judges don't get to a predetermined result by any means necessary. And you don't want judges who are results-oriented. Such judges are not judges at all, but legislators. Where a lot of frustration does sometimes arise on the right is when people misunderstand and think the judges appointed by Republican administrations do not reach the proper conclusion on legislative and policy matters. They don't reach the conservative conclusion. And to be fair, in part that's because all too often Republican appointees shift away from any claimed philosophy of textualism or originalism, which are slightly different philosophies, but at least are both moored in the words of the relevant law. And some of these nominees move towards judicial activism and liberal philosophies more than that was inspected when they were nominated. But what it does mean is that liberal judges and those who support them often do get the policy results they want because their judicial philosophies are no philosophy at all. They are results-oriented. While conservatives more often get judges who properly respect their roles in the system and do not impose results-oriented decision-making on society, the left almost always gets judges who are there to do what they believe is just and equitable, and that's to reach the proper policy conclusion, a leftist policy conclusion in that situation. This is the right approach to not make those decisions to not put your personal policy preferences into your judicial role. But it can lead to difficult political challenges, and it can lead to improper court decisions that usurp power that should have remained with the people or the states. So where are some of the areas of the law where the courts, especially and for time's sake in this episode, the Supreme Court, has strayed from principles of the originalism of Scalia or the textualism of Thomas to insert the judge's own views, not supported by any reading of the actual words of the relevant law? 
let's start with prayers in school. In 1948, the Supreme Court decided the case of McCullough v. Board of Education. In that case, a majority of the court deemed it unconstitutional for an organization of many different faiths to offer religious instruction to public school students, where since those students were mandated to attend school but could miss a part of the day to go to these religious classes, it was deemed an establishment of religion. Ignore for a moment that there was not a single religion being taught. It was many, many religions, and it was at the option of the students. And then in 1962, the Supreme Court in Engel v. Vitale struck down school, school prayer. There was school prayer at the start of the school day in New York, and that was deemed, again, an unconstitutional establishment of religion. Kind of funny since Congress starts its own business with a prayer, but that's a typical hypocrisy we deal with with the government. And then in 1992, the Supreme Court in Lee v. Wiseman found it unconstitutional to even invite clergy to provide opening invocation or benedictions at a middle school graduation. And then shortly thereafter, in Santa Fe Independent School District versus Doe, the court struck down a policy that allowed students to elect a fellow student to say a prayer before football games. And these decisions should strike people as odd, because doesn't the First Amendment, by its actual words, only prohibit a law by Congress that establishes a religion? We won't get into the incorporation doctrine that was used to extend provisions that textually only apply to Congress, to state and local governments. And I suspect a dictionary definition of establish or establishment would be a good starting point, along with consideration that none of these policies were congressional enactments at all in the first place. And the other interesting element of these Establishment Clause decisions is they essentially ignore the free exercise provision of that same First Amendment. And what about the general right of privacy? It certainly sounds good. I like my privacy. But its discovery for the first time in 1965 in Griswold v. Connecticut, a case about a married, married couple's right to birth control, was nothing but made-up judicial law. Do a search on an electronic version of the U.S. Constitution and type in the word privacy. It simply doesn't appear. To be certain, there are clear express protections against kinds of invasions of privacy, protection against unreasonable searches and seizures, protection from quartering soldiers in private homes without consent, but a general right of privacy simply doesn't exist. And the creation of that led to the creation of a right to abortion in Roe v. Wade. To be certain, the founders provided for no such right. There's no text that could be relied upon to find a right to abortion. And not only does the word abortion not appear in the Constitution, it's based on the false conclusions of the general right to privacy in the earlier case. And then we go to some more modern situations, like the Obamacare Affordable Care Act case where a twisted interpretation of a mandate on individual citizens to purchase a product was recharacterized as a tax in order to uphold the law. And the one-man-one-vote case holdings like Reynolds v. Sims and the affirmative action cases of the 70s and then into more recent times that upheld affirmative action in college admissions despite the fact that the 14th Amendment, on which so many of these made-up rights are found to exist, actually does require equal protection of the laws and doesn't allow for racial preference. But these cases were clear examples of results-oriented decision-making. And then taking and sort of diving in a little bit more to a more recent case of Obergefell versus Hodges, which is the case on gay marriage recently decided by the Supreme Court. In mandating gay marriage be recognized in all 50 states, the court majority determined a preferred outcome, and to get there, it had to usurp authority properly left to the states and the people under our constitutional system. The question, as in any of these cases, is not, is it the right thing to do? A question that can lead reasonable people to reach different conclusions but whether the text of the law requires it or prohibits it. 
The dissents in this case may be most instructive on the mistake that is made when one caves to judicial activism just to get a decision that that seems desirable. Justice Scalia explained, It is not of special importance to me what the law says about marriage. It is of overwhelming importance, however, who it is that rules me. Today's decree says that my ruler, and the ruler of 320 million Americans coast to coast, is a majority of the nine lawyers on the Supreme Court. The opinion in these cases is the furthest extension, in fact, and the furthest extension one can even imagine, of the court's claimed power to create liberties that the Constitution and its amendments neglect to mention. This practice of constitutional revision by an unelected committee of nine, always accompanied, as it is today, by extravagant praise of liberty, robs the people of the most important liberty they asserted in the Declaration of Independence and won in the Revolution of 1776, the freedom to govern themselves. I couldn't have said it better than Justice Scalia. And Justice Thomas's dissent also adds perspective to what is lost when we consent to be governed by the court merely to get a decision that we prefer today. He writes, The court's decision today is at odds not only with the Constitution, but with the principles upon which our nation was built. Since well before 1787, liberty has been understood as freedom from government action, not entitlement to government benefits. The framers created our Constitution to preserve that understanding of liberty, yet the majority invokes our Constitution in the name of a liberty that the framers would not have recognized, to the detriment of the liberty they sought to protect. Along the way, it rejects the idea, captured in our Declaration of Independence, that human dignity is an eight and suggests instead that it comes from the government. This distortion of our Constitution not only ignores the text, it inverts the relationship between the individual and the state in our republic. And perhaps even more clearly, Justice Alito started his dissenting opinion explaining the following. Until the federal courts intervened, the American people were engaged in a debate about whether their state should recognize same-sex marriage. The question in these cases, however, is not what the states should do about same-sex marriage, but whether the Constitution answers that question for them. It does not. The Constitution leaves that question to be decided by the people of each state. These three dissents are brilliant in their description of what's wrong with this decision and what's wrong with so many judicial activist decisions, and with judicial activism as a philosophy at all. And at this point, it may be important to understand that saying the Constitution does not protect a certain right does not mean the right should not be protected by a state or by the federal legislature, or that it's a good or bad policy to protect a certain kind of activity. But if it, if it is not in the Constitution, it is not in the Constitution. And allowing a judge or a group of judges to insert it merely places the judiciary above our Constitution and above the people it is to govern by their consent to it. Because over time, we, just as Congress has, have punted our decision-making to this unelected group of nine. We now view every Supreme Court appointment as some sort of critical piece in the policy puzzle, when the court should act in a much more limited capacity. Advocates on both sides of major issues seek commitments from nominees. They seek some kind of understanding of what the appointment of someone will mean to an actual later decision. They see the appointment of someone with credentials on the left or right as an advocate in the policy fight, rather than as a neutral arbiter our judges should be. The tendency to accept and even endorse judicial activism against our own interests is an overarching problem in the view of the courts in today's society. 
But there are also other problems with the way we view courts, and the legal system more generally, that only add to the bastardization of the least dangerous branch our founders intended. So what is judicial activism? Judicial activism can come in liberal and conservative clothing. Judicial activism is, in the simplest terms, the court and its judges acting as legislatures, creating law and not merely interpreting and applying it as passed by our legislative bodies. But it's often misunderstood that any judicial decision to strike down legislation is activist. That is simply not the case. And judicial restraint is not the exact opposite of judicial activism. And by that I mean that a commitment to the text and original meaning of laws does not always require restraint if it's necessary to strike down laws that are in clear conflict with the Constitution. In the 1990s and into the 21st century, many commentators tried to paint the Rehnquist Court and some of the decisions striking down state and federal laws as themselves proof of conservative judicial activism. What these commentators fail to understand is that a judge is bound by the law, most prominently and supremely the Constitution. And it is not an activist decision to determine that a given law goes beyond the authorities given the legislature in that Constitution. That is not to say that there cannot be conservative judicial activism, but it does not come cloaked as proper decisions that a government has exceeded its authority under clear law. Because those on the left side of the political spectrum traditionally seem to prefer more federal and government action, not less— It is just far more common for activism on the left to occur in the form of upholding government action, even when it does far exceed the authority we the people have given it, as long as the outcome is one perceived to achieve a good. Such activism is wrong no matter the supposed good to be achieved. Now there is a different issue presented here, and that is whether judicial review of the actions of the other branches is itself even appropriate. And some of our earliest statesmen, including Thomas Jefferson, did not see this implied judicial power. Instead, as one of the co-equal branches in our government, the court could be viewed as only properly applying the law rather than reviewing the law itself. And there is an argument to be made that the court should be so limited. But we are so far down the path of judicial review that going back on that role seems unlikely at this point in our country's history. Instead, if we are to accept the judiciary can actually decide whether an act of another branch or state is constitutional, we must at least limit such decision-making to only those actions that the law, the constitutions involved, clearly speak to in their text. And judicial activism has not always given us good policy, and accepting it is accepting that at any time in the future, a majority of the court can change policy and change it against what you may think is the right decision. Judicial activism gave us the horrendous decisions of Dred Scott, reading into the Constitution some claimed property right and slave ownership that appears nowhere in the founding document, and Plessy v. Ferguson that upheld segregation despite its clear conflict with the recently added 14th Amendment. These decisions were judicial activism, a reading into or out of the Constitution to reach a then-desired decision despite no textual support in the document itself. From Lochner to Griswold to Roe, the court read into the Constitution terms and protections that at no time did our states or our people ratify and endorse. No matter how righteous the claimed interest, it is never sufficient to justify judicial usurpation of our self-governance. Perhaps most unfortunately, the very people and groups who cheer judicial activism in a living, changing Constitution fail to recognize the power that gives their opponents should conservative activists ever control the courts. And this reliance on an unelected judiciary has all but eliminated any need or attempt to amend the Constitution through the proper procedure if it's concluded that an update is actually required. Rarely do we hear cries for constitutional amendments. Instead, it's just a cry for the Supreme Court merely to hand down the changes sought with no legal support. 
This is far from the rule of law on which our system rests, and indeed is much more like a true rule of men. And it's not just judicial activism alone that has bastardized our judiciary, but the tendency now to look to the law and the courts to provide a remedy for every injury, no matter the circumstances or lack of legal principles to support such relief, is also causing much harm to the system. Just as the default response to any problem seems today to be to look to the government to fix it, the courts are no different in how we now have a near dependence on lawsuits and court action, not only to resolve our biggest policy disputes, but to resolve disputes among us as individuals. Gone are the days where mature adults can work out their problems. Someone says something offensive, paints his house a color a neighbor doesn't like, accidentally sells a defective product, or accidentally injures someone and the race to the courthouse is on. That is not to say the courts have no role in resolving disputes, but not every injury should result in a full-on war against the at-fault party. Accidents happen, and we each should voluntarily pay for the damage our accidents cause. But the courts as a means to wear down another, to extort money and threaten financial ruin against someone who did not have an intent to harm, is a bad approach to the courts and the law. Who hasn't purchased a ladder or a food item or some other product to read the warnings just to laugh at the absurdity? But rest assured, that warning resulted in someone actually doing what the warning now states not to do, and then suing, and then the warning was required. Who would have thought Tide Laundry detergent needed warnings not to eat the Tide Pods? Or that in a recent incident, Gorilla Glue needed a warning not to use it as hairspray? The law has run amok, and not only because our courts have all too often taken the power from the people to hand down edicts on policy, but because we now live in a society where every injury demands that someone be held accountable, no matter the lack of any bad intent and where we turn to lawsuits to compensate us, sometimes even for our own stupidity. Here are some of the things about which society apparently needs warnings. And keep in mind, these did undoubtedly exist because our legal system was used to seek a windfall based on the suing party's own lack of common sense. Because I certainly need to be told my wheelbarrow is not for highway use. Or that children need to be removed from strollers before folding them up for storage. And while you're at it, you shouldn't allow your children to play in the dishwasher and don't put family members in your washing machine during the spin cycle. I hear that can go very, very badly. iPod shuffles are not edible and coffee is hot and you should not use your hairdryer in the bathtub or while sleeping. These warnings alone should show the need for legal reform. And it's critical not only because as a society we no longer take responsibility for ourselves and expect someone else always to pay for anything that happens to us, but also because the courts are often, state and federal, all too willing to entertain ridiculous lawsuits to avoid appearing unfair or unjust. This is again results-oriented, but just as with the decisions of the Supreme Court, our courts are bound by the rule of law, and judges should be willing not to allow public resources to be expended in the pursuit of idiocy. Tort reform and other legal changes is a topic to delve into on another day, But needless to say, if we did not look to government, and specifically our courts, as the body expected to right every wrong, we might turn the responsibility back on ourselves and our communities in a way that would return us to a society of self-governance in both the personal and governmental sense. As always, thank you for listening. Until the courts and the judges who sit on them restrain their decisions to the laws properly passed by we the people and our elected representatives, We will continue to see key issues of the day decided by unelected men and women who have stepped outside their roles set out in the Constitution. As with so many misunderstandings about our system, the focus on results, while abandoning core founding principles, leads only to less power in the citizenry and the risk that eventually the power we have ceded to the judiciary may be too far gone to reclaim. 
Next week, I will discuss the rationale behind the Second Amendment and the recent attacks and threats to curtail the rights of citizens to defend themselves against a tyrannical government. Alexis de Tocqueville explained my point on the need for personal responsibility and for us to stop looking to the government, and particularly to the law or the courts, to solve all problems, when he observed, There is no country in the world in which everything can be provided for by the laws, or in which political institutions can prove a substitute for common sense and public morality. And even in the days of de Tocqueville, he saw the supremacy to which we were willing to elevate the judiciary despite our framers' opposite intent. There is hardly a political question in the United States which does not sooner or later turn into a judicial one. Let us support more jurists who, when reaching decisions on these court cases, do so without regard to the outcome and their personal preferences, but only with reference to the law to which they are bound. Until next time, stay free, be brave, search for truth, stay safe, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to share the podcast with others who may enjoy and need to hear it. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to anchor.fm backslash solace-veritas and clicking the support button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solace Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales' Scepter. Copyright 2021.